You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Evan Ratliff. How are you, sir? Hey, Max. I get to sit in Aaron's chair. I know you're, on ch- you're in Aaron's chair. I you're on like Aaron's gonna, mic. I'm going to be, be more energetic. I need a siren sound. Now. <laughs> Go. It sounds like a cat. <laughs> uh, Aaron's away. Yeah, he's hanging with the cats of Vietnam. Yeah, that seems to be our long-form podcast destination of late. Um, so someone's going to have to say who we talked to, and I think it's going to have to be you. Max, who did Aaron talk to? This week, Aaron talked to Dana Tortorici. She's the editor of N Plus One magazine. Uh, their offices are like 50 yards from where we're sitting right now. They are on our floor. They're by the, the dark stairwell. <laughs> they are. They are by the, they're by the stairwell of darkness. Which you avoid. I think you're a little scared of that. No, stairwell. I take it. I take it out the back if it's cold. I don't know. I tried to go have you go there once recently. <laughs> you like begged off, made up some excuse to it's take terrifying. the elevator. But <laughs> Impulse One is over there. And they're uh, fun. They are fun. And uh, and Dana runs the magazine. And uh, this one was really. This, this conversation is really interesting. There are uh, a a lot of really good lamorisms in this one. Some fantastic lamorisms. But also Dana really talks pretty candidly about what it's like to run a small magazine. That magazine has been around for 10 years. That'll make you feel old it's if amazing. you're a person who was around when they started. <laughs> Could also just make you feel young if you weren't around then. Well, I don't know any of those people. <laughs> uh, uh, what about sponsors? Uh, we have a sponsor, Evan. I'm going to give you one guess. No idea. Come on. I, it's like Come on. If I had information coming to me through email, <laughs> I would know more stuff. If you had subscribed to some sort of uh, newsletter, perhaps. Mm. Uh, you would have known that our sponsor this week is Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It's done by the good people at MailChimp, and we thank them once again for their sponsorship. And now here's Aaron in Abstentia with Dana Tortorici. Welcome, Dana Tortorici. Hi. This episode is actually kind of unique because I had on Keith Gessen about two years ago, who is one of the founding editors of N Plus One. And you are the current editor-in-chief of N Plus One, yes, is that correct? Yes, co-editor with uh, Nikhil Saval. Co-editor-in-chief. And I like only can remember one thing per podcast. And <laughs> I remember very um, clearly I was asking Keith about being sort of angry and motivated and 
what made him want to start the magazine. He was like, you know, I'm actually like in my 30s now. I'm like kind of chilled out. Um, but we passed it on to these younger people. And I was like, oh, so you found some angry young men to run the magazine. He was like, actually, no, it's women. And you are among those angry women. The um, angriest woman of them all. The angriest woman. So I guess the first thing I'm kind of interested in talking about is inheriting someone's uh, legacy in that way and, and what, it, um, what it feels like to step into the shoes of um, a group of people who, who founded a magazine like N Plus One and having to sort of uh, both continue that vision and I'm guessing probably change it a lot. Well, I deal with this problem or this kind of conflict every day. The Keith problem. The Keith problem. No, <laughs> Keith's not a problem. Um, yeah, it, it it's on my mind a lot, and it's something that we think about all the time at the magazine. There are sort of practical things that are kind of difficult, like trying to change the profile of the magazine in a public way without calling too much attention to oneself. That's always really difficult. I've right. been told by people who I think have my best interests in mind that, you know, if you really want anybody to know that N plus one is no longer run by like five men, you're going to need to throw those guys under the bus. And I, I can't throw them under the bus. Right. Like I love these guys and they've also been wonderful friends and mentors and editors. So there's the kind of like media presentation problem. Um, and then there's always the problem of, you know, when you inherit a, pro- when you inherit a project, there is something that drew you to it in the first place that made it attractive to you and welcoming to you. And that's something that you want to preserve, but then you also want it to be flexible so that it can grow and expand and accommodate more different people. And for something like M plus one, it's not always easy to articulate where that line is. Like, what is it exactly about this magazine that I like? And what characteristics of it are mutually exclusive with other things that I want? So if it's going to be more inclusive, does it need to be less mean? If it's going to be more geared toward a general audience, does it need to be less less academic or esoteric? Um, And those are little negotiations that take place on a sort of telescoping scale every day. Do those kind of um, discussions take a democratic form or is that something you're like, less mean, do it? (laughs) Uh, I think that they, it's, it's not always democratic in that it's it's we don't always vote, but they are things that are worked out communally, kind of with the active editorial board. One thing that I do really like about the current structure of N plus one is that the reason Nikhil and I are the co-editors in chief is because we've committed to bringing in the most pieces per year to the magazine and editing them. So the only reason that you know Keith or Chad or whoever aren't also at the top of the masthead is because they said, look, I've got too much stuff to do this year. I can't commit to bringing nine to 12 pieces or however many right. it is to the magazine this year. And so the people who do the most work have the most say over what goes in and how it works. And every single year we have an editorial board meeting where we sort of revisit like, okay, how's this working? What are people's schedules for the next calendar year? Who can do what? And this is totally necessary because we're an all-volunteer editorial staff. Except for yourself. Yeah. So there's the editorial staff is all volunteer yeah. um, for the magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an actual paid staff of three full-time people, which include me as managing editor, 
uh, Laura Kramer, who's our deputy ME, and Cosme Del Rosario Bell, who's our business manager. And just recently, Joe Livingston came on to be our program manager. She's working part time. I want to come back to the um, the throwing of people under buses. Yes, because people ending up under buses is is part of the history of N plus one, <laughs> and also and, Mean Girls. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and you've inherited some feuds. One could say you've inherited like a history of attacking other publishers, uh, writers, etc. When you say like there's a sort of a question about meanness or 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 how how that works editorially, do you feel like that that's like a weight that sort of gets carried around? Like every time there's sort of a takedown piece, that's something that the magazine has to carry forever. Or are these like one-offs that like it goes on the writer's record in a way? Um, it depends. I think. You know that there there are some takedowns that took place before my time yeah. at the magazine that I just don't register or remember because even if I read them as a reader of the magazine, they weren't really personal or significant to <laughs> right. me. Um, I don't think that they're nece- necessarily carried around as sort of like a burden on the you know collective psyche of N plus one. I'm interested in the sort of model you, you described it as you need to bring in a certain number of stories this year, Mm -hmm. which is like a little bit unusual. You know, generally in a magazine context, it's like, okay, like, you know, the magazine needs to do it. And the way you described it was almost sort of like everyone's like a like freelance editor who's responsible for a certain amount. So when you start putting together your editorial year, you have a quota sort of of stories you need to do? Yeah, for the for the magazine we do, not for the web. Obviously, we can just do whatever. And how do you structure that? Like, how, where are those stories coming from? How are you make, making sure there's a mix of sort of different kinds of stories? Like, what is the editorial calendar for an operation like N Plus One like? Well, it's something we're still kind of figuring out. The magazine went from two to three times a year in 2010. And I think only got on a regular publishing calendar under Carla Blumenkrantz. Max moderated a panel at South by Southwest under which two people who were uh, the editors of Quarterlies admitted that, like, on average, they'd actually come out about, like, 2.7 times a year. Yeah, it's common. But so we come out three times a year. We're proud of that. And it's really kind of touch and go. The reason I sort of say that people need to bring in pieces is that it's it's really difficult to read as many things as we get submitted to us. And because we don't have a dedicated staff that reads submissions or assigns things or kind of just keeps up, you know, keeps a bunch of pieces in the air, that responsibility shifts seasonally based on who's available. So, you know, whenever we have really big projects going on in the office, like we're just, you know, kind of running the nonprofit organization of M plus one, I don't have a ton of time personally to bring in a bunch of pieces. So I count on Nikhil or I count on Chad or I count on Mara or somebody else to kind of bring in some stuff. So the sort of life cycle of an issue begins approximately three or four, like a month or so after the previous issue comes out. We have an editorial meeting and people just sort of independently, I guess you could say as a freelancer, but it doesn't really, it's not yeah. really appropriate in this context, <laughs> um, as a volunteer, honestly, um, you know, have pieces that they're working on. And so these are things that they've assigned to people, said like, hey, that's a fascinating idea. You should write about that. People have pitched to them. They fished it out of submissions in the general inbox, whatever, something they're writing themselves. And we all meet and kind of circulate which pieces we really think can go 
kind of from a draft to a sort of real N plus one piece in about a month. So everybody reads everything. We Mm. meet. We collectively discuss them all. We kind of go around and talk about which pieces we're most excited about and then which pieces we want to talk about because there's always a difference between like this looks great. It's totally uncontroversial and like this is sort of like medium, but it's super controversial and everybody kind of wants to have it out. And those meetings are really productive because collectively between, you know, 10 editors, however many people can show up, there's a lot of knowledge that's, you know, an overlapping body of knowledge, but different editors sort of have different strengths, not just as editors, but also kind of different interests and areas in which they're very well read and knowledgeable, which does contribute to the kind of things that they bring in, which is why it's nice to sort of distribute that responsibility among a bunch of people. You're like describing my personal hell, which is like a ton (laughs) of people like having to agree on things in a room. And like, I guess my guess would be like, if you had told me that this was your idea for a magazine, Mm -hmm. not a magazine that you actually are currently running, I'd be like, that'll never work. Be like, definitely don't do that. Well, you know, and it it kind of didn't for many years. I think. So why does that work? I'm curious. Like, what what is it about the about N plus one where you can get a bunch of unpaid people in a room? And they can all basically choose to do something that's labor intensive collectively and do it. I think that um, what's unique about N plus one is not its ambition so much as that it's continued to execute that vision without a tremendous amount of money for quite a long time. Well, the short and practical answer is that over the years, we've figured out that you can't do this with 10 people or even five people and make it work as a sort of majority rule. It's not satisfying to anybody, which is sort of why we have the masthead breakdown that we do. So Nikhil and I, as the people who bring the most stuff, at least per last year, are the voting editors. So it's, you know, kind of comes down to us like, okay, so what's going to go in this issue? What do we maybe want to hold for the next one? What needs more work? And if we're split on it, then we kind of go to the group and say we're split on something. Uh, so far, that hasn't happened. I think that we're you know, pretty uh, compatible as far as editors go. But why does it work? I honestly worry sometimes that it wouldn't work if we had money, which is terrible because, you know, I also am like... You heard it here first. Don't give N plus no, one really any money. Give us a lot of money. <laughs> give us all the money you have. No, I, I can understand. I can understand that idea. I mean, there's no money to squabble over when you have no money. Yeah. I guess I feel like a lot of people, like a lot of projects like this, have like a sort of a, a founder who's like a kind of a cult of personality, and the minute they exit the room, everyone just murders each other. <laughs> and you're not. You're not. I mean, you're probably when N plus one started in college or high school, I would guess. I was in high school. High school. So you were not like part of the first wave at N plus one. No. You were not at, at those parties. You're someone who who's coming in from a totally different place and you've sort of been able to merge in there. What kind of skills are necessary to like be the person who commissions the most stories in a room like that? Like what, what do you think, what do you attribute to, to your success in being able to do that? I think that being on staff in the sort of working office staff of M plus one does give me a real incentive and advantage to do it because I'm also the taskmaster where I'm calling all the meetings, I'm demanding all the drafts, and if we don't have something, I got to write it or edit it and put it in the magazine. Uh, so that certainly helps. But I think that a certain level of diplomacy and an ability to 
know when to give to others, like when to kind of give ground and concede something and when you really need to sort of push for your angle. I think that helps a lot. I think that there was a lot of dramatic and sublimated energy in the sort of early issues of the magazine that I just can see reading it, that this was a real like tussle between a bunch of personalities who really were admirably and to me inspiringly sincere and wanted to figure things out and so would fight with each other um, and, you know, bring the gun to the knife fight sometimes in order to make to make it work. But I also think that it's unsustainable. And I do remember feeling in kind of early, earlier meetings when I kind of started editing for the magazine, you know, there's a line like you can't fetishize conflict so much because conflict does and anger does generate a lot of good work. But it's also it also inhibits a lot of good work. And I'm more of the school that thinks that people do their best work when they feel good or at least don't feel like shit because I don't do my best work when I feel like shit. So I've tried to, I don't know, create a culture. I think it was already there, but kind of just encourage the culture of mutual encouragement among the editors. And especially when you're not paying anybody, like that's all you can really offer. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put uh, Aaron and Dana on hold for a second, tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the absolute wealthiest investors in the world, all for just a quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Uh, Here's how they do it. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Uh, It's overseen by a team of investment experts, the same people who launched the index fund revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. Uh, Here's another thing you should know. Wealthfront manages over $2 billion in client assets. That's billion with a B. And they've saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. Uh, So here's what you should do. Go to wealthfront.com slash longform. You'll get your first 10 grand managed for free. Uh, One thing I should tell you, this is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks. There's the possibility of losing money. Go to wealthfront.com slash longform. Check it out. See what they can do for you. And uh, let's get back to Aaron and Dana. I'm interested, actually, in that idea of encouragement, which I think is a new idea in N plus one, and in certain ways is a new idea in publishing in general, that like, I guess it's maybe that no one's getting paid anymore, but it seems (laughs) like it maybe makes more sense to like, you can't pay top dollar for pieces. You can't say like, uh, hey, Michael Lewis, you should do a piece for uh, N plus one. So you're, you're working with younger writers who are often like, this might be their first large piece. I'm guessing that you get a lot of pieces that show a lot of promise but are not totally ready for prime time. Um, People who haven't published anything this long, this in-depth before. I guess my question is like how you develop someone who you think has talent but isn't ready to publish at M plus one yet. How do you take a piece with someone who's never actually sort of gotten from point A to point B? Um, what are like what are the ways that you've found effective to take pieces that aren't working yet and getting them to a place where N plus one can publish them? 
Well, I think that something that happens at Plus One that also happens at a lot of magazines, and I think you see this maybe most visibly in magazines that have a very dominant house style, like The New Yorker, that when something comes in and just kind of isn't working or the writing's not amazing or doesn't have a super strong uh, kind of individual pull to it, it just sort of kind of falls back by default into the house style, Mm -hmm. which is funny because it presents this problem where some people think that the best New Yorker piece, they're like, okay, I'm going to write for the New Yorker. I have to write like the New Yorker voice. It's like, no, the New Yorker voice is what happens to pieces that don't carry their weight. Like you shouldn't be aiming for that. And so what happens a lot at N plus one is people will have an idea. Writers will pitch or send a draft and they have this idea about like what an N plus one piece is. And it's this kind of, it's this sort of like negative image of, of like how you are perceived um, filtered through somebody's own kind of bizarre, like writerly tics and psychology and you're like whoa is that really what <laughs> yeah, people that, think that's, this a, that's a really is? interesting idea like <laughs> yeah that's a that's a, that can be a horrifying thing to see that what people think you want it's only worse in intern applications i read 50 intern applications today and that is like truly terrifying it's like a really like warped but maybe more honest mirror than anything you ever wanted yeah, the, the high concept intern application <laughs> is, is a, a delight Oh, wow. Yeah. But point being that, you know, um, people will pitch something they think is an M plus one story. And a lot of the time you'll see, uh, I'll read those pieces and see a glimmer of a personality kind of or a style or an idea or just a sort of mental presence hiding under all of this dressing that is like the N plus one outfit. And I, I try to just be very candid. I'm like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Take um, your clothes off. Just, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah. Yeah, do that. I, I also I think that the N plus one editorial voice as presented in the magazine and the intellectual situation is very different than how we talk to each other and how we talk to our writers as editors. And I think people who write for us for the first time after encountering the magazine are kind of surprised that most of us don't really think that way or write that way, aren't not every single piece of communication that we issue is aphoristic, biting, and researched. That's an interesting idea. I mean, the idea that say in the last 10 to 15 years writing is like communication is going towards a more casual model. I know that you've published like a lot of round tables. Mm-hmm. Like what does it mean to sort of like get out of that like writerly voice and sort of publish the way people talk more? I think how people talk is fascinating. I imagine you do too since you have this oh, I, podcast. I, I, I like it a lot. Although I don't, sometimes I don't like it when I see it. Like I've tried doing a few transcripts of this podcast and I was like, whoa, whoa, that is not how I remember this interview being. Yeah, it's really funny. You know, when I was in college, I took a really amazing class with a graduate student who was a documentarian and was working on a bunch of different ethnographic films And she was really interested in the interview as a form and as kind of a problem and kept running into different complications while interviewing subjects, especially the filmed interview, but also the, you know, recorded interview of any kind. And she kind of used this class as a kind of an occasion to sort of explore this. And I learned a lot of really, really great journalistic but also editing 
skills from this class. One of the things that I learned from her was that if an interview feels really good to do and you're having a blast and it you remember it as being very engaging and smart and also funny, it's not always going to come off that way when you listen to it later or to another listener. It's just going to sound like two people giggling and talking over one another. And that especially does not translate well to the page when you need people to be saying sort of discrete chunks of text. And so this was something that I thought a lot about when doing No Regrets, which was the small book that I did with M plus one in 2013, which was all roundtable interviews. And the other thing I learned from that class, and she's brilliant, her name's Paige Sarlin, a shout out to Paige, was that if somebody stops talking while answering a question, don't move on right away, because they might just be thinking or be pressured by the silence to elaborate. And it's something that I even now just do in conversation, listening to people. Uh, because I, I have my conversation style it tends to be very interactive. I want to be like, yeah, of course, and and like jump on right away by making sure that I've understood what they say. And I think that that's kind of something to do in editing, too, which is kind of give a breath just so people can kind of collect what they mean. And sometimes you, the one very literal way in which you in where you see this is somebody writes you with a new draft or is like uh, sends you a piece offers an explanation of what they're doing and you ask a question, be like, okay, so like, what do you mean by this? They'll usually, a lot of writers who are anxious will just respond right away. But if you don't write back right away, they'll keep thinking about it and then write back like an hour later and be like, I want to refine what I what I said. I, I thought this. My example of that is always like, if you send an attachment and then you get that like version right after that's like, don't read that. Don't read that. I'm about to reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that one too. And send that. I send that email a lot. Speaking of email, yeah, email is a real tool. I One of the best editing tricks I learned from Keith Gessen, who's an amazing editor, and this kind of speaks to the thing we were just talking about, about writing and writing the sort of writing voice versus the spoken voice, is that Sometimes people get, especially people who are kind of committed to a certain style, will get caught up in the cadence of their sentences or this idea that they have in their head that they won't just explain something in the simplest way possible with a reader in mind. Absolutely. And so sometimes, you know, Keith would read drafts of things I was writing and he'd be like, I read the sentence like, what do you what do you mean by this? And sometimes I would find it infuriating because I'd be like, what are you, a moron? Like, don't you know what that is? Um, and so I would get mad and I would I would write a very long, articulate email. And he'd be like, great, you should put that in the piece. And he would just copy paste it and put it in the draft. And, you know, of course, it would be like the sort of most lucid thing going on there. And I'd have to sort of suture it in. But I mean, it's interesting because that idea of lucidity, like when you look at the way most people talk, people are pretty able to communicate ideas and talking. And then there's this other pole of academic writing that is by design sort of obfuscates um, common language Mm -hmm. and uh, uses its own uh, language, diction, all sorts of techniques to sort of distance itself from everyday thought. Mm -hmm. And I feel like N plus one is like in this weird nebulous zone that tries to embrace both at times, um, or at least in its evolution has included both. So like, I'm interested also, like you've, N plus one was very involved in the Occupy and covering Occupy. And that's like its own language, Mm -hmm. you know, with the like, um, everyone talk together, 
doing the people's weird, mic. I'm doing, a, I'm doing a hand motion, which is the I think it's the people's mic. For what I, I don't think there's a hand motion for the people's mic. Side note. I did not actually go to Occupy, so it's this is chill. all third hand. But these are all different like ways of talking and ways mm-hmm. about talking about the world. Do you feel like an urge to get an N plus one tone down where you can kind of synthesize all these things into one tone? Or does it not matter and you can have different pieces across a, a, a issue that each take a different sort of style? In a way that I don't think people always appreciate, N plus one is a place and has its sort of editing styles and priorities that really does value clarity. And it varies from editor to editor, and you can almost tell, or I can tell now knowing them all and how they edit differently, you know, who kind of did what piece. Then we all also edit collaboratively, so, you know, one person's line editing and so on and so forth. And because, like, N plus one deals with a lot of, like, difficult material, either because it's academic or it's kind of boring or whatever it may be, or it's long we do really try to make things make sense. And that's kind of what reigns supreme over everything else. And I think that if we had more money and more time, the magazine would just make more sense, like on a sentence level. Because I, we even to like all the way through copy editing, like we are kind of turning sentences over and over again and try to be really straight with each other and with writers being like, this sentence sounds good, but does it make any sense? Like... There are certain things that sound great in context, but they don't really mean anything or they don't make any sense or they're kind of poetic or misleading. And there is this constant tension between that impulse like to a kind of clarity, which I think the guys really got from not only sort of like David Foster Wallace, but even a more simple sort of like love of Chekhov, you know, just like... You know, that line in Chekhov that's just like, I actually got this from an intern application. They put this in here and I was like, God bless you. It was the, but about how Chekhov had this sort of mania for, for brevity, just was like everything I read, I read it and I'm like, this could be shorter. Um, and that's, and funnily enough, like we publish so many long things, but I think that's also true. At M plus one, everyone's like, just cut it in half. Sounds good. I went to a... Uh... I'm, I don't know why I'm I'm chock full of uh, South by Southwest uh, impressions, but we went. I went to a panel on long form journalism uh, at South by Southwest that I was not a part of. But the, the first fifteen minutes of the panel were um, everyone talking about how the word long form was horrible, and that um, it gave people the mistaken impression that length equaled quality, which is not actually, I think, a real misperception that anyone has. No, I don't think anybody really thinks that. I don't think that's what's causing shitty long writing. Oh, I think people don't have editors anymore. And and that's an interesting idea. Like, of the people who are coming to write for N Plus One, which I'm guessing is not for a huge amount of money, Mm -hmm. uh, many of them, I'm guessing, traditionally just aren't edited at all. Is that a, a tension for you as an editor, like editing people who are usually like, uh, I kind of just do my thing and they usually publish it? Like, what do you say to someone who hasn't been edited before um, when you're giving like a harsh round of edits? Well, luckily, we don't have that many people come to us who have never been edited and yet have successful careers as writers. <laughs> um, you could just do like a hard stop right there. We either have veteran writers who come in and are used to being edited. They know what it means to be edited. They'll push back, but they don't have problems being edited. And then a lot of young people who have just not really been edited before, but they don't have expectations about what it means to be edited. And I think most of the writers we work with 
I'm sure they find it maddening. It's a really maddening process. Being edited at N plus one can really suck as somebody who's been edited at N plus one. But I hear all the time, like, no one has taken my writing so seriously. And we do. We take it really seriously. And part of the reason we take we take it seriously is because it's our time. Like, I would be relaxing or reading a book or doing whatever for myself. Like, I'm taking time out on a Friday night or a Sunday afternoon to edit your piece because I want it to be good, because I believe in you as a writer. And I think people get that. I think there's a sort of mutual respect that people are aware of. But I would also say that, like, I've had some kind of more seasoned writers write for the magazine and say, like, this is wonderful. I feel like nobody's paid this close attention to my writing since 1998. You wouldn't know what that means, but it's a compliment. And I don't know what it means, but it is a compliment. (laughs) So you were not uh, working at N Plus One in 1998. Actually, I don't think it had started yet. But um, some people, many people who you were working with probably have been writing since 1998. You're pretty young to be uh, the editor-in-chief of a magazine. Yes. Um, what was your path from that brought you to N Plus One in the first place? I came to the magazine in 2010 because I was taking time off from college. Just needed a break. I had been running my school paper, the Alt Weekly, and I just really loved it. And it's funny, thinking back on it, I was kind of co-running it with these two other young women, and we... I think we were the second staff ever to be like the all the only women running this magazine, having kind of like an all female. This magazine the called the Alt Weekly. No, no, no. It was called alt. it was called the Indie. It was oh. the College Hill Independent. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but so, but it was College in, Hill Independent sounds like the like the magazine the, in like in like a sitcom. It yeah, it was. It was the magazine in the sitcom of yeah. my life of the Dana Show. Yeah, it was funny. It had this reputation of being very scary and being very male dominated and being kind of like a hipster rag. And it's funny, there are a lot of illustrious indie alumni who are now at a bunch of different organizations, Alex Provan at Triple Canopy, David Noriega, Sandra Allen, at, and Kat Stuffel at BuzzFeed, Alex Carnival was on the indie, Molly Lambert was on the indie. I know Sandra Allen listens to the show. So. Oh, hey, sub, Sa- hey, sub Sandra. Sandra. What's up, girl? Um, yeah, a lot of dope people worked for that, you know, someone landed I came in and I was like totally terrified of this of this like newspaper, and I there too I felt like it was more important to me to sort of change the culture of the paper and make it a fun place to work than to make it super good and have like super dope, yeah. you know, record reviews or whatever. That's like um, a that's a weird male pursuit where you're like my only objection is objective is to make this the best ever. Like I will crush <laughs> you if you try to make this inferior like and it's bizarre and I, I remember feeling guilty at the time because I'm like oh maybe this newspaper is worse I can't tell but all I know is that none of us are getting any money for this we're all like trying to finish college like we should be having a good time so it was it was funny to go from that to N plus one which I didn't know anything about the culture of N plus one I'm from California nobody gives a fuck about New York publishing in California like truly does not no one cares I'm, I'm also from California and I remember that when I when I first moved to New York someone showed me Gawker for the, I was completely unaware that Gawker exists and they're like it's totally skewering the media scene and I was like what's what is the, the media, media scene, scene? <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. I only knew about Defamer, um, which was like the LA vertical that was never updated yeah, on Gawker. I think I think that went under. Yeah. Well, actually, I think maybe they brought it back now. Who knows? But um, um, but yeah, yeah but none so of the shit matters at all. No, really not. And it's super funny because I remember just being like, "What? I don't know what any of this stuff is. Like, who are these people?" But so I. I decided to take time off from college. I was 20 years old and I told my parents that I just wanted to take time off from school, that this was very common. I had a lot of friends who were doing this. They were terrified and were like, you need to get a job or apply for an internship or something. They really wanted me to work for NPR, but NPR didn't want me. But so I, you know, I got two kind of paths opened up before me. One was to work at the Believer. They were looking for an intern, but they kind of just didn't return my calls in time. You know, I'd grown up with the Believer because I'm from Southern California. I knew what that was. And then N plus one, which I'd only started reading in college um, and seemed much more opaque and a little scary. And Ali Heifetz, who was then the managing editor, was like, hey, I'd love to talk to you. Do you want to come in? And so, you know, I did an interview with her. She was awesome. I came into work. And she was like, by the way, I'm going to law school. I'm like leaving this job in two months or something. So I started at this really kind of precarious and strange time where Allie had already gotten into law school, was going to go. And the only people who were really regularly in the office were uh, two former interns who were helping out with submissions, me, brand new, and, you know, Chad who is kind of like in and out all the time. So I think Allie left like probably in about March or April. And then there was this kind of stretch of time where me and Kathleen Ross, who kind of took over as business manager for her, were just like in the office by ourselves, which was a totally strange situation to be in. Like you get this internship and like nobody's there. Um, And I remember there was one day in particular where I was at a reading for... Elif Botchman's book, which had just come out, and we all went out to get pizza afterward. And Keith was making fun of me because I had a BlackBerry. You know, he was like, Dana's our first intern with a BlackBerry. <laughs> um, and he was like, Dana, what do you do when you're not at M plus one? I'm like, well, I babysit. I'm a freelance graphic designer. I like Photoshop the tiny bodies of children onto brochures for the youth sports league in Brooklyn. He's like, do you want to come in more often? I was like, sure. <laughs> Why not? So I started coming in every day. And I remember that, you know, there occasionally would be days where it was just me and Chad or I would be there by myself and they would just call and be like, what's up? And I'd be like, I'm on the computer. And then that summer, Carla was hired to be the first kind of managing editor when Kathleen and Carla's jobs were split into two jobs because they'd been one job, business manager, managing editor. That was it. And that was really when the magazine started to professionalize in like a really serious way, kind of under Carla and with this new order. And it really was only possible because we got, you know, a big private donation from somebody to like actually be able to hire a real staff. And that was sort of the transition from N plus one being a magazine into a foundation, I think it called No, that. it was a foundation. It, it had been a foundation in that we like got nonprofit status in 2008, a couple years prior, and had started Paper Monument, or Paper Monument was started within the N plus one foundation. That's, Paper Monument is the uh, sister art publication yes. to N plus one. Yeah, has their own, they have their own editorial staff and their own thing, but they're just published by the foundation under the wing of the foundation. But that was like when we started coming out on time um, and started actually like having an office. And so, you know, I was I had nothing to do. They let me keep coming around. Um, and then that summer, uh, Mark Greif was around because he'd been teaching. He was kind of around more and he wanted to finish 
the hipster book, What Was the Hipster, which had been sort of in the making since 2009, since they'd done this panel. And so me and Kathleen and Mark were like, okay, we're just going to make this book, finish this book. So for about three months over the summer, we pulled this book together. And then I think at one point I protested. Mark was like, "How? what do you think? How's the book going? I'm like, well, it's really weird. Like this image of what is quote unquote like hipster culture is presented as like incredibly masculine like where are the women in this book it's really weird it's like not like there's no women in this like so-called subculture and he was like well what do you think about that and I started kind of like telling him my ideas and he was like you should write an essay so I wrote a, I wrote an essay for the book I had no idea that that was going to happen. But I mean, do you have that feeling? I mean, I don't know, were you 20, 21 years old at this time? I was time? 21. I just You're turned like, 21, yeah. How I haven't written anything. I'm not going to be able to well, keep, kind of. keep pace. Like, I, are you just a extremely confident person by nature? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, okay. I mean, I'm I'm incredibly anxious. I like have pretty bad anxiety, but I, I think I project confidence. And I also, I mean, like, let's pull out for a second like this is pretty low stakes this is like a niche magazine in a corner of New York that like a lot of people take really seriously and I don't think I understood how seriously when I kind of started to do this but I was also aware that it was like oh this is like an opportunity I was like okay I'll take this one actually I tried to go back and, and in preparation for this interview read some of that what is a hipster stuff and I was like wow the uh ship really sailed on this topic like this topic seems old now. I know. It's funny. At the time, I remember thinking, like, this seems a little premature, doesn't it? Um, And no, it really, really tanked. After that book, it kind of just disappeared. And I think it really was that big shift between 2010 and 2011, right, you know, after the financial crisis, but also with Occupy Wall Street, we had this new resurgence of youth sincerity that had been totally absent in, like, what you would call hipster culture, which is, like, sort of affectless and, like, into, like, esoteric, non-relevant knowledge, sort of object fetishizing, uh, kind of, like, superficial effete culture um and then i think a lot of those people were just like we're getting fucked (laughs) yeah i was gonna say it's like it's kind of like not a particularly popular time to like pile on people in their early 20s like with everyone being unemployed but you yourself are actually of that gender i'm a millennial you're a millennial so i gotta ask you some questions about being a millennial one of which is like so i sometimes i'll go make an appearance at a university and i ask people to like raise their hands if they've ever subscribed to a magazine and not a lot of hands in the air. I've talked to Keith, I talked to Keith about it in the show. I want to ask you the same question because he was like, I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. Like how does someone who's never going to subscribe to a magazine sort of intersect with N plus one? And is it concerning for you to spend really like your Friday nights editing articles that largely will go out to like a small number of print readers like do you feel any disconnect as someone who's putting a ton of time into to a print product right now well I have kind of a a funny perspective on this because my dad works in television uh, and is really into reaching as many people as physically possible you know he loves talking to me about the sort of golden age of tv where everyone was watching all in the family and the thing that was brilliant about all in the family was that 
there were people who were watching that show because they loved Archie Bunker and mm -hmm. identified with Archie Bunker and were like, this is me. And then there were people who were like looking at his children and identified with the children and are like, look at this bigot being a bigot on television. Like, it's an amazing skewering of this figure. But everybody was watching this television show. And so it was like a way for everybody to be having the same conversation at the same time. And that was a really compelling idea to him. And I think kind of growing up with television in this like hyper-saturated, like mass-distributed culture, um, I didn't really care for that because it didn't, you know, like the things that I would see on TV or the things that I would, would be kind of in these like mass circulation magazines, like they didn't seem to be true. And I think that, you know, television has gotten, you know, sort of narrative drama television is like incredibly sophisticated and like awesome. I think TV is great. But it was more important to me to find the people who I could talk to who were thinking about the same things as me. And it didn't matter if there were only like 10 of them or 5,000 of them or 10,000 of them. Because like there's no reason to not have these like niche cultures. Like I don't think it should be necessarily associated with elitism or a failure to be good if you're small. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I don't mean to sort of overstate the significance of smallness. Like, I think that, you know, it has its it has its place and it's not everything. I think that N, N plus one could have more readers than it does, but it's also not something I'm insecure about. It doesn't really bother me. I think I would be more like, what am I doing with my life? if I was editing articles on a Saturday night for two million people that I thought were dumb. It's an interesting idea that no matter sort of how much you attack the problem, you wouldn't, there's not, N plus one is not going to compete with high traffic publishers, even if that was like what you embraced as an editorial direction. Mm -hmm. Is it difficult as a publisher for to attract writers? I mean, is that audience something that attracts to people to publishing with an N plus one versus somewhere else? Like how many people they're going to reach and is this going to be online or not? I think is this going to be online or not is totally a concern. And we've had like, you know, arguments with writers where they don't want something to be online or they oh, do wow. want something to be online because, you know, people, it really gets, it gets some of the editor's goats because they're like, you know, they're like when we came out with our new website last year, which has all of the magazine's archives online. So even if it's behind a paywall, it's right. online. There's like a EPUB version know, of it. Right. Yeah. And there's also an EPUB version. Yeah. So you can do you can read both. But, you know, some people came back from like, you know, who'd contributed to issue three and are like, I wrote this for print because I didn't think anyone would read it. And like, <laughs> what are you fucking talking about? You published it in a magazine. If you wanted no one to read it, you could publish it in your diary. But there, but also the other, you know, the converse has obviously been more common where people want want it to get out there. And we've kind of experimented with, like, what, how many things to put in front of the paywall for free, how many not. I think we put more. I think we put maybe most, like, most of the issue in front of the paywall now over the course of a issue cycle. Because, yeah, we do want people to be able to share their stuff. But other than that, I, I think that the magazine still appeals to the people it appeals to, you know, if... If people can write a New Yorker story or if people can write a BuzzFeed story or people can write, you know, whatever kind of story, I think that they should put it, place it at those magazines. Like, I don't think those should be for N plus one, really, because N plus one should exist to do the things that those places can't because, you know, they have, 
you know, a, a degree of accountability that we don't have or they have certain constraints that we don't have. You know, when people know that they're going to need a really long time or they want like a lot of editorial attention or that it's going to be kind of weird or kind of controversial and they don't really know what it means. Like that's an M plus one piece. And I think people I think people like that. How do how do millennials hear about N plus one? Like, there's some, like <laughs> well, that's something I never understood. Like, okay, so I heard about N plus one. Be, well, I mean, I, I was friends with Allison Lorenzen in college, but like, Hello. there was a period of time when like there would be like, these guys are kicking up some shit in Brooklyn, <laughs> and there would be stories written about that. And now I feel like we've kind of moved, you know, like we've moved past the like the hipsters and we moved into this new place. And I just I don't even know like how people find out about things like N plus one. And I assume that for, you know, for every uh, new subscriber you have, there's also someone who like lapses and, and you lose people. So I, even it, it is a modest number of people, but you have to keep that up. Like where are the new people coming from? They come from college mostly, which is college hill kind of disappointing. I mean, not really because I think that the magazine, I would be, lying if I were to say that like the magazine was easily accessible to every human being on planet Earth. I think that a lot of college students like M plus one because it's not super condescending to young people. You know, we it's funny that you, <laughs> you mentioned millennials because the new intellectual situation and the new issue is about is about millennials. They're hot. Millennials are hot right now. Um, I heard millennials are the new hipsters. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You always have to have one. Um, but I think, you know, I found out about M plus one because it was taught to me in a class, wow. in a writing class. And I think that that's how like a surprising number of people learn about it. Um, but I also think, you know, these sort of bigger offshoot projects that we've done have kind of stirred interest in the magazine in kind of specific communities. Like I think the Occupy Gazette, which was really its own publication and, you know, it had some crossover with the magazine. But I think that really kind of got the magazine on people's radars. I think that a lot of the feminist projects that M plus one has been doing have been appealing to like a previously untapped audience that would maybe not be into the magazine to like check it out. But yeah, I think, you know, it's more people graduating every year. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, is there a tension, you know, when something like N plus one that really like, it's not, I don't think affiliated with any university that I know of. No. Um, and it can be quite critical of academia, but is it is it a tension to sort of draw your core audience so heavily from academia? Well, it's funny. It's not really intentional. Like, yeah. it's not like we target college students in particular. I think that part of the reason that they're drawn to N plus one is that they're still being, they're still learning a lot of critical theory for the first time. Uh, it's, those ideas are really fresh and exciting to them. And they want to see what kind of writing can be done that engages them that's contemporary, that's not like literally done in a graduate program. I also think that college students are taught to hate things that they, having never made anything in their life for the most part, like are taught, you know, how to sort of disassemble and pick apart things and talk about their shortcomings. And so, you know, N plus one is like a pretty critical magazine. Um, and I think that that's just something that they're kind of into, though uh, 
I would like to disabuse them of that tendency because I think it's bad. I mean, that's an interesting idea, the sort of tension between um, sort of construction, uh, making things mm-hmm. and um, uh, tearing them apart, you know. Um, I guess I'm sort of curious about like that general spirit. Like, obviously, there's something very constructive happening or there would not be a magazine. But yes, it, it does in some ways embrace that academic tone of tearing things apart do you think that's like a in the DNA or is that something that can evolve? Because it seems to me like that that tone is sort of the in some ways the most nostalgic or sentimental part of the magazine. Well, it's funny that sentiment, I won't say only, um, but mostly lives in the IS and the intellectual situation. And it's amazing how those pieces are very You're blaming short. ISIS for this? I'm blaming ISIS for this. Um, but they really uh, overshadow so much of the kind of the long feature pieces of the magazine, which tend to be more constructive and, and like genuinely sincere mm-hmm. and quite serious. Um but that's kind of what, because it's an editorial voice and because it's also like at times an antagonistic and annoying voice, like I think that people kind of latch onto it as the identity of the magazine. I don't think it needs to stay, honestly. I think that like the magazine will always be critical. It will always have that edge, you know, it'll always be fighty. I think if there's ever a time where we feel like we're doing it for its own sake, that that's not right. And it's something that we think about. You seem like you have a lot of competing time sort yes. of uh, commitments here. Like we haven't even addressed that um, N plus one has like bills and yeah. <laughs> um, like uh, like email to send mm-hmm. and like people wanting to partner with you and pitch to you and all that stuff. Like do you put any lines in the sand where you're like, I do this on this day, I do this? Like The, the lines in the sand are, are drawn um, – Mostly by other people, by loved ones, who are like, uh, hello, you need to come spend time with me. Um, and then I remember, like, oh, yeah, I have responsibilities and a life. Well, that seems like, that seems like as good a place to stop as any. Yes. Um, thank you very much yeah. for coming in, Dana Tortorici. Um, thank you. That uh, um, newest N plus one is available at their website where you can become a subscriber. Definitely subscribe. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky, covering here in the credits for Aaron Lammer, whose interview with Dana Tortorici you just listened to. Thanks so much to Dana for uh, making the epic trek down the hall to talk to Aaron. Our third co-host is Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, the great people at Tiny Letter and Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the easy way to invest your money the right way. Go to Wealthfront.com slash longform and learn what they can do for you. Uh, We'll see you next week. If you're sitting around over the course of the next week and you're thinking, hey, I got some free time. What what, what could I do here? Uh, Go to iTunes. Go to iTunes. Leave us a review. Rate the show. It's very helpful. We appreciate it. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.